Well, hi, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, Mike and Kelly are on vacation. I think, think they're in Indiana seeing some families. So good for them. They deserve it, right? Doesn't Mike do a fantastic job up here? He is so gifted, and I am not in comparison. So you're going to find that out tonight, that he's a really gifted preacher, and you should, you should really thank him because he is such a blessing. Uh, I'm Pastor Al Frank. Um, I am the Regional Associate Superintendent of the Central District of the Evangelical Free Church of America. Business card's about that long. So um, really, we're missionaries. My wife and I, we serve the different churches in the Free Church in Missouri and Arkansas. And uh, it's a pleasure. We work with church planters. It's one of the things I get to do, working with people like Mike and you. And we have 12 different church plants in the Central District right now. It's more than we've ever had at one time. So our plate is full as well. Um, it's always good to know a little something about the guy who's speaking to you. I was a pastor at Calvary Church for about 12 and a half years, uh, planted one of their three locations. I kind of have church planting in my bloodstream, can't get that out, which is it's a good thing to, to have. Um, I want to show you a picture of my family. Um, you know Terry, she's sitting right there. there there's Terry. We, we've been married for, it'll be 30 years in, uh, in May, May 25th. It'll be our 30th anniversary. Uh, when we planted, our church was very diverse. We had a lot of African-Americans in our church. And in the African-American culture, the wife of the pastor is known as the first lady. And so uh, I kind of adopted that. She's the first lady uh, in our household and the only lady, I, I will add. And she's a wonderful uh, wife and uh, ministry partner for me. Um, we met at Six Flags over Mid-America, actually. Um, I was a groundskeeper. She worked in games, and that area right around her game, I kept that real clean. I got, had, took care of that. The rest of the area looked terrible, but uh, it looked good. But uh, we fell in love, and we had uh, two kids. Meredith is our oldest. She's 23 years old, and she is a teacher at uh, Santiago Dominican Republic, a Christian school there. She, church, she uh, teaches first grade. Actually, this week they had uh, kind of some riots uh, real close to the, to the school, um, so be praying for her. We actually get to go down to uh, see her next month, so looking forward to a trip to the Dominican Republic. Never been there. She's holding Cosby, by the way, who is one year old today. This is Cosby's birthday. And uh, next, to, uh, next to them is Andrew. He's our son. He's 21 years old. He lives in Webster Groves, and he is a stand-up comedian. Not kidding you. He's really a stand-up comedian. Uh, our our family needs a lot of prayer. So um, <laughs> he uses a lot of things that happen in our family in his act. So um, I guess we're all sort of famous in that way. But if you would pray for Andrew, pray that uh, God would really grab a hold of his life and that his, his comedy, his gift of laughter would really bring a lot of glory to God throughout his life. If you pray about that, we would appreciate it. Uh, if you go to the next one. How is your oikos is the name of this message. How is your oikos? Some of you are thinking, I don't even like Greek yogurt. So what, what is the deal? Um, actually, oikos is an important word to know. Really important word to know. In fact, it's the number one factor in the growth of churches in America, in the world, not only in the 21st century, but in the first century, all the way up to this time, it's the number one factor that the Lord uses. I hope I have your attention on that. Go to the next one, and you'll see kind of an outline of what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to talk about what is your, your uh, oikos, your oikos. I even said the word wrong there. Everyone say oikos. oikos. You've just spoken Greek. That's a Greek word. I'm going to explain to you that you have one and what it means tonight. And I'm going to show you how the Lord uses oikos as the number one way to spread the good news. I'm going to show you that the Lord used friends in my, in my oikos to completely transform my life. And I'm going to share with you a bit of an action plan for Missio Day to use your oikos and your oikos and your oikos, all of you, together as a team. Sound good? So now you have the outline. If you do happen to drop off to sleep, 
If you wake up, you'll know exactly where I am in the message just by looking at that. But you won't fall asleep because this is important stuff. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're present here with us right now. This is your church. This is your ministry. We are your people, your family. Would you tonight, would you show us in your word this important concept of oikos, what it means, what, a, what an honor, a privilege it is for us to reach out to our individual oikos with the good news of Jesus Christ and to make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. Lord, would you work in and through us tonight? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Sound like someone was vacuuming. I wasn't sure what that noise was. Outside. outside, okay. Let me take you to a passage. It's Mark 5, 18 and 19. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with the setup. We're kind of coming at the tail end of it. What happens is Jesus has just exercised demons, lots of demons from a man. And here we see in verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And in that couple of verses there, Jesus defines what oikos is. The Greek word oikos means house, but it means a lot more than that. In the first century culture, a person's oikos was their extended household. In your house, you might have many people living there. You would have your immediate family, and they had lots of kids back then. So it's a lot of people. You might have extended family members in your house. You might have servants living in your house, an extended number of people. Your house, extended household, is your oikos. It's your people, your own people, your peeps. <laughs> To, to coin a phrase from, what, 2005. It's so 2005 now, no one uses it. But your peeps, your people. You go to the next one, Alex. It's your relational network. That's how we would use that, that word today, your relational network. Eight to 15 people, some of you have a lot more than that. Your sphere of influence it's your family members, but it's your friends, it's your co-workers, it's your neighbors. Whoever it is that you have the most influence over, that's your, your oikos. Your oikos, okay? Do you get the concept? You're tracking with me on what this means? What would your motivation be to reach out to your oikos with the gospel? Anyone want to chime in? What might your motivation be? Because Jesus really kind of reveals it here in that couple of verses. Your motivation is love. It's love for Christ. It's, it's love for the Lord. It's also love for that person that you're reaching out to. If you go to the next one, Alex. Love and gratitude. Gratitude for what the Lord has done for you. In that verse 19, Jesus said, Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So it's gratitude for what Christ has done in your life. It's love for the Lord. It's also love for that person. That's what's got to motivate us. It's not to get, you know, a, a, a scalp, you know. It's not to uh, chalk one up that, hey, look what I did. Can't be. That motivation is bad. The only sustaining motivation is love. Love for the Lord. Love for people that you'd want to share what, what the Lord did for you with them and out of gratitude, share that. Go to the next one, Alex. So I just want around your table real quickly, two sets of people here tonight probably. One is Christians. You've crossed the line of faith and you can point to a time where, where Christ came into your life. You've got the new life. And for you, I want you to, to just tell someone around your ta table, Tell everyone at the table, who pointed you to Christ? Who pointed you? And it might be many peoples, but just 
kind of condense it down. Who pointed you to Christ? Now, if you're in another group, let's say that you have not crossed the line of faith yet. You're here, you're checking out the claims of Christ. Let me tell you, this is a good place to do that. This is a good place to find out about the gospel, a good place to get into the word, a good place to ask questions, a good place to just check out the claims of Christ. Is he who he said he is? And you're among people that you can do that with. This is a good, safe place to do it. But for you, I'd like for you to just answer, who is pointing me toward Christ? It might be a present tense thing. So go ahead, just two minutes. Tell us who pointed you to Christ or who is pointing you to Christ. Okay, let's get back together. And uh, I'm going to ask you to do kind of a show of hands on this. I'm going to give you some choices. And the first would be, anyone here have kind of a Damascus Road experience? Uh, you were walking and, and kind of a blinding light. You saw a blinding light. You heard a voice saying, this is my son. You know, that kind of thing. The voice of God. Did, did you hear something like that or see something like Anyone have that experience? I just rose my hand, but I didn't really experience that. That's probably not the normative way that people come. I mean, it's how Saul became Paul, but it's not really the normative way that that people come to Christ. Um, here's another one. Raise your hand if a parent, a, a brother, sister, uncle, aunt, third cousin, some family member helped point you to Christ. Anyone here, a parent? Oh, a lot of, a lot of family members this time. Okay, very good. Now here's a third, a third choice. And sometimes it's a combination, right? Sometimes it's, it's many. So if this is also someone who, who did point you to Christ, how about a friend? Maybe many friends. Maybe it's a lot of people along the way pointing you to Christ. How many would say that? Just let me see your hands again. Okay. You know what? You may have just kind of messed up my survey a little bit. Because <laughs> usually, if you go to the next one, Usually the number one factor is 90% plus of the time, it is this. A caring Christian friend, neighbor, coworker, or family member, well, family member is included there too, I forgot, is by far the single most important factor in seeing a person come to a living faith in Christ. Not necessarily the people from the sitcom Friends, but, but friends... They might have been involved, I don't know, but friends and neighbors, coworkers, family members. And it's true in your life too, wasn't it? That someone was pointing you to Christ. You're not unusual in that way. Let me show you a passage from, first, from John chapter 1 that shows us that it was that way from the very beginning of the Christian faith. John 1, 35 to 46 the next day, John, and John in this first line here is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. He literally pointed them to Christ in that moment. And when the two disciples heard him say this, two disciples, we're going to see just a little bit later in verse 40, that Andrew is one of the two disciples. Not sure exactly who the other one is, although I've got a pretty good educated guess. My guess is it's John the, John the Apostle, the one who's writing this. He has a, a manner of never mentioning himself by name in his gospel. So I think it's him. Most Bible scholars would say, think it's John the Apostle. One day, we'll get to meet him and ask him, okay? Can we just plan on doing that as a group? Let's just get together and ask him. Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Let me ask you, speculation, but do you think that John the Baptist was disappointed that they left him and followed Jesus? Do you think he might have been a little jealous of Jesus, that they left him to follow him? I don't think so. Again, we'll get to ask him, though, right? Now, that's why he came. He came to point people to Jesus. 
That's exactly why he was there. A voice crying in the wilderness. There he is. There's the Messiah. So they follow Jesus, these two disciples. Turning around, you ever have someone following you? Here, Jesus has two people following him. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? They just want to know where, he, where he's going to stay. And he says, come and you will see. Go to the next. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him. Wouldn't that be awesome to be able to spend the day with Jesus? Actually, you can right now. You can every day. He can be with you every day. But they get to physically be with him and talk with him. They spent the day with him. It was about the 10th hour, which is 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So from 4 on in the Jewish culture, they would have these long dinner meals. They would often have three-hour meals. They'd start at 6. They'd end at 9, three-hour meals of conversation. They're there just talking with Jesus. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two He was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. Andrew is a special name in my family. It's got a lot of personal meaning. My great-grandpa was named Andrew. My dad's name was Andrew. My middle name is Andrew. My son's name is Andrew. And that name placed into the family for a good reason, and it's coming right up here. It says the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Wherever you see Andrew mentioned in Scripture, almost every time he's pointing someone to Christ, he's bringing them to Christ. Uh, There when there's the feeding of the 5,000, what he does is he brings a little boy who has a sack lunch of a couple of fish and some bread, and and Jesus multiplies it, right, and feeds 5,000 people with that. Andrew's always pointing people to Christ, bringing them to him. And he does that here for his brother, which is exactly the reaction, the natural reaction, whenever you get good news, is to tell your family and your friends. You call them up, you Facebook them, you do whatever, and you say, guess what? Good news. I got the job. Good news, I'm getting married. Good news. Cardinals won the World Series. I don't know. Just whenever you have good news, who's the first person you tell? It's family. It's friends. It's your oikos. Your oikos. That's who you tell, and that's who he tells. So he goes and he finds his brother, Simon, who is Peter later, right? Simon Peter. And they tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Go to the next. So the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Now follow the progression here. Andrew finds Jesus. Then he goes back and gets Peter. Peter finds Jesus. Now Jesus goes and he finds Philip and asks him to follow him. I've got a theory on this that it's going to be unfolded in the next verse. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. He's from the same town, Bethsaida. They all live right there. And guess what? They all have the same occupation, fishermen. Now, if you're in a small town in Galilee, you live in the same town, and you have the same occupation, you know each other quite well. I'm going to speculate for a moment, but I think it's well-founded that that day-long, that night-long conversation between Jesus and Andrew and John, or whoever that second disciple was, whatever that conversation was, they told him about Philip. And now Jesus, he goes and he finds Philip and he says, come follow me. Now watch the next progression. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Now Philip found Nathanael. Who's Nathanael? Nathanael's the friend of Philip. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. You've got to see for yourself. Come and see. Interesting, this progression. It's all working through an oikos. The oikos of Andrew, the oikos of John, the oikos of, of Simon Peter, the oikos of Philip. There's a spreading of the gospel, a spreading of the good news, and a following. One disciple finds another disciple, finds another. Their lives are touching, and they begin to follow Christ. Now, Nathaniel, you notice here, is a bit of a, a skeptic. You've heard of doubting Thomas? Well, now we have doubting Nathaniel as well. Did you know that there are a couple of skeptics among the disciples? I, I'm encouraged by that because there was a time when I was a skeptic. I'm going to tell you about that in a moment. But Nathaniel's a bit of a jokester, I guess. He has a wisecrack there. Nazareth, could anything good come from there? Because it's, it's a town with a bad reputation. It's a town that's kind of out in the sticks, but that's where Jesus is from. That's where he lives. Go to the next one. Now, this book, The Rise of Christianity, written by Rodney Stark, it's an excellent book, by the way. He had one profound question that he wanted to try and answer. And the question is this. How did an obscure, marginal little group of followers of Jesus, obscure, marginal little group, Right? Just 12 of them. Many of them were fishermen. They weren't scholars. They weren't wealthy. They weren't politically active. They didn't hold high offices. They were an obscure, marginal little group. And yet, they became the dominant religious force in the Western world in just a few centuries. How can that possibly be? Here's Stark's answer. The primary means of growth was through the United and motivated efforts of a growing number of Christian believers who shared the good news with their friends, relatives, and neighbors. With the, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit, leading them to speak the good news to their friends, families, neighbors, whomever they meet. That was the primary means that the church grew into the most dominant force the world has ever known. The world got turned upside down by people like Andrew and Peter. Amazing. And it's just the way God intended, even to this day, even to this moment. Go to the next one. How does the gospel spread today? Is there some other way? Is it that, that TV and radio and the internet have had such a massive you know, effect on people that we no longer have to share the good news with people we know? I don't think so. I think that those tools can be used. They're important. But still, to this day, you spreading the good news through your oikos is the primary means by which the Christian faith grows. Go to the next. This man right here is Andy Stanley. He's a pastor. Maybe some of you know of him and his ministry. He's a pastor in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, North Point Community Church. They have, I don't know, 25,000, 30,000 people in their church. And many people had the wrong idea about them. They would say, you know, the programs are so good and, and so, you know, uh, so wonderful. That's what draws people in. And Andy said, no. 90% of the people we reach are people that our people have invested in and invited it's not our programs. And let me just tell you, it will never be about your programs here at Missio Day. As good as they are, as good as they will become, it will never be that attractional thing that people are just going to flock in because of a program. They come in because of your motivated love to reach them with the gospel. That's why they will come. That's why they will come. There will be lots of people who will join you. If you reach out to your oikos. If you make a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple, it's going to ripple through this community. Go to the next one. I want to show you this video. And that's a video from a church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, as you look at that, all those names are not just names. Those are souls. You know? 
the souls will be somewhere forever. And, and that's a church that gets it. They're reaching out. They're motivated by the love for Christ, love for people, love for the soul. I have to tell you that um, I grew up in High Ridge, Missouri. Some of you know where that is. It's just south of uh, St. Louis, about 30 miles, uh, just a little south of the St. Louis County border in Jefferson County. And um, on occasion, my family would go to a church that was about a quarter of a mile down the road. But usually, my dad and I would stay home and we would watch roller derby and wrestling on TV. Wrestling at the chase. Anyone remember wrestling at the chase? Anyone? I'm, I'm really, oh, two of us. We can talk about, you know, Dick the Bruiser and Harley Race and those kinds of guys. But um, we had a good time. My dad and I, I loved just staying home and wrestling on the carpet with my dad. When I was about 12 years old, my dad came home one day and he said, we're going to be going to church every Sunday from now on. And I said, rats. <laughs> I didn't want to go. You see, a friend of his, in his oikos, this guy named Charlie Harris, he carpooled with him. My dad was a, a mailman, a letter carrier, and he would uh, carpool with this guy to work. Worked at the Sappington Post Office. And Charlie shared the gospel probably many times with my dad. And my dad received Christ. And my dad became a very committed follower of Christ. But I wasn't. And now I was at the church every week, but I was doing the best not to hear anything that was said from up front. And I was very rebellious as a teenager. Then I went off to college. I went to University of Missouri, uh, Columbia, Got a degree in political science, which was taught a lot by Marxists and atheists, and I fit in pretty well with that at that time. Then I went to uh, University of Missouri School of Journalism, the graduate program there, and uh, became a trained skeptic there. It was really uh, quite something. Then I came out of that, went into uh, the TV news business, became a TV news producer. Um, worked on a lot of documentaries and TV news programs. I worked here in St. Louis. I did the hat trick. I did, AB, I did the ABC, CBS, NBC affiliates, channel two, four, and five. Uh, I know they've kind of swapped affiliations, but that's what, the way it was back in the old days when I was here. But um, let me show you a picture. That is, that was kind of my working environment, part of it, the newsroom and also the control room. Kind of a stressful job. The clock was always working against me, kind of as it is with a sermon too, but um, always working against me. Very stressful job. At the age of 25, I was producing the 10 o'clock news right here in St. Louis, my hometown. That was my lifelong goal, and I had reached it at age 25. I had a beautiful wife. I had power, powerful job. I had money. I had everything, I thought, but I knew on the inside that there was a lot that was missing. Now, as I produced the 10 o'clock news, there was one person in the newsroom that I, I focused on quite a bit. I wanted to know um, really what his life was like because he was a, a professed Christian. He was someone that was very high uh, visibility in the Christian faith, and I thought for sure that I would see him trip up. Actually, I did a couple of times. In the heat of the moment, the stressful environment of the newsroom, a couple of times he did trip up. But then he apologized. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, I kind of admire that. He's not a perfect man, but... Go to the next slide. Here he is. Uh, there's Larry Connors back when he had some hair. And uh, he, um, he was on St. Louis television for 40 years. And he pointed me to Christ. I was part of his oikos. I don't know if you can tell right where we're at right now um, on, in that picture. We're on top of the arch. Go to the next one. 
Here's a wide shot of where we're at <laughs> at the moment. Uh, we were working on a project, the 25th anniversary of the opening of the arch, and we got to go up on top. They changed the aviation hazard light, go to the next one. They changed this uh, light, you can see it's a little bit better. I'm the one on the left there, on the far left. Uh, it's 17 feet wide up there, by the way. Um, and you dare not walk very far. It slopes off pretty quickly. <laughs> but uh, we went up there to change the aviation hazard light. You can go to the next one. There you can see, I mean, if you don't want to walk very far there. Um, it could be a really thrilling ride. But uh, go to the next one. There we are. There I am probably thinking about that trajectory of, you know, if you happen to slip. But uh, we're changing the aviation hazard light there on top of the arch. You can see in Larry's hand, there's a light bulb. <laughs> About to change that. The guy to the right works um, at the arch, or he did. And Larry was in my oikos. And Larry would say things to me about his faith on a regular basis. And the closer I got to him, the more I knew him, the more I began to trust him. But something happened that year in 1985. Uh, my dad died of a heart attack. And um, it caused me really for the first time to really ask ultimate questions. Is there a God? Is there purpose to life? Who is Christ? Who do you think I went to to talk to? I went to Larry. I trusted him. Now, I had every question a skeptic can ask because I got a question. I have a, a question mark for a brain. And uh, I ask every question you can think of. And he was very gentle. He was very uh, patient with me. Because it took a long time to answer all of my questions, but he kept pointing me to Christ, kept pointing me there, kept pointing me to read the word for myself, which I did. It was a summer night, July of 1987, that I was reading Isaiah chapter 53. If you haven't read that, read that. It's remarkable. 700 years before Christ was born on earth. This passage, Isaiah 53, was written. And it precisely details the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. It details it even though crucifixion was not a form of execution until 200 BC. And this was written in 700 BC. And as I, as I was reading that passage that night, I had the sensation of Christ, not audibly, mind you, but speaking to me, to say, Al, you are a sinner. You are far from me. But I came to do this for you. I came and I, I did pay the penalty for your sins on the cross. If you will just give your life to me, if you will surrender to me, I will become the Lord and Savior of your life. And I did that that night. And that was the greatest moment of my life. Because it is a moment that will last forever. I will always be with him. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He will always be there. And so, my Oikos kind of changed my world. My life was transformed. A lot of things happened at that point, it did a 180 degree turn in a lot of areas. And uh, I experienced a calling in the ministry along the way and uh, went to seminary, became a pastor. But I never forget what it was like to be walking without Christ. And that's why I am motivated to share with you, to share with anyone the good news of Jesus Christ. Go to the next one. Why is Oikos evangelism so effective? Why, why did that happen in my life? Why has it happened in your life that you're here? What happens? Go to the next. First, there's a trust factor. 
76% of consumers these days don't believe that companies tell the truth in advertising. I guess the only uh, surprising thing about that is 24% must believe it, you know? But uh, we live in a skeptical age. There is one There is one group, though, one major exception. Pre-Christians, and that's why I call people who aren't yet Christian, pre-Christian, because I hope and pray that they will cross that line of faith. But pre-Christians say that they still have one trusted source who won't steer them wrong. You know what it is? My friends. My friends. Now, we have the one trusted source, Jesus, who happens to be our friend. We have a friend who laid down his life for his friends. They just have friends. They have friends, and if you're a good friend, you would be one who would point them to your friend, just as we saw with with Andrew and, and, and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. They're pointing people to their friend, Jesus Christ. Go to the next. There's also a transformation factor. I was telling you that, you know, I could see the, the change in, in Larry's life and, and people began to see the change in my life in the newsroom and in my neighborhood and places that we would go. They would see that I was different, that Christ had come in. I was a changed man. Go to the next one. See, family members and friends, they see and hear about your life transformation, but not just you telling them, They actually see it by your deed. It's word and deed. They see your life now. And they're impacted by that. Go to the next. In the early church, the fragrance of new life in Christ drew so many to check out the claims of Christ. You know, in around 251 AD, there was a plague. We believe it was probably smallpox. It's impossible to know for sure, but it seems like smallpox. Five million people in the Roman Empire died during that plague. A couple thousand people a day at one point. Do you know who stayed and cared for the people who were sick and dying? It was the Christians. The Christians were there. They were caring for their family members. They were caring for their neighbors. They were caring for people that they hadn't even met before then. And Christians who once were thought to be cannibalistic because they said they drank the the blood and the body, they must be cannibals. Or they, they were said to be incestuous because they said they loved their brothers and sisters. Total misunderstandings. But now through word and deed, The people who were there in that environment with the sick and the dying, they saw their love for people. When your life is transformed, when Christ is working through your life, your oikos notices your family and friends and neighbors, and it will lead you to some conversations that are absolutely glorious. Go to the next. 2 Corinthians 2.14 Paul begins to write about this very thing. He says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ. I love that phrase. The aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Are you the aroma of Christ to your oikos? There's also a time factor. It takes time. If you go to the next one, Most people, conversion does take time. 86% of the time, it takes time. About 14% of the time, one time, hearing the gospel and they receive Christ, but that's a pretty small percentage. 32% takes several months. Sometimes it takes several years. More than half the time it does. So people who 
are reaching out to their oikos sometimes get the wrong impression. And they'll think, I failed. You know? Then they didn't become a Christian. I, I had coffee with somebody and told them about Christ, and they didn't become a Christian. I'm a failure, you know? No. No, it takes time. It may take many exposures to the gospel message. And the results aren't up to you. The results are up to the Holy Spirit. Your, your goal in this is just to be faithful, to present something of Christ to them. Go to the next one. Right now, what I'd like for you to do is to create your oikos list. List your family members. List your closest friends. List your uh, co-workers or neighbors. Whoever you think is in your sphere of influence, your people in your oikos. Write down at least one name of a person in your oikos, in your sphere of influence, who is not a believer And just take a minute to do that. I'll give you a minute to think about it. Then if you would, and let me tell you, if it's confidential, make up a name, you know. Fred, you know, you can just tell them that name around your table so that they can be praying for this person. Who is it that we can pray for tonight? Go ahead and do that. So that's your prayer list. Be praying for People, you may have 10 names, 20 names, 50 names on your prayer list as time goes, but be praying for them. And you may want to kind of have them in rank priority of people that you know you can speak to. So here's some practical suggestions if you go to the next one. The power of a cup of coffee. And I'm not talking about, you know, the strength of Starbucks coffee, for example, but but. The power of a cup of coffee. When you sit down with someone and you just have a conversation and you begin to, to share your faith a little bit in maybe some easy ways. Here's an easy one. When you go to work on Monday, someone will invariably ask you, what did you do this weekend? Right? Just a common thing. What did you do this weekend? I want to ask you to do this. Get in the habit of always telling them, that you went to church. If you did, by the way. If you didn't go, then don't say that. But that you went to church. Just let them know. You don't even have to, you know, ask them if they went. You just let them know that you went. And here's the reason. Fewer and fewer people go to church these days, if you haven't noticed. Statistically, 16.7% of people in America attend a church on any given weekend. And actually, it's less than that now. That's an old figure from 2010. About 85% of the population doesn't go anywhere. That's nationally. We're a little bit better than that here, but not much. Less than 20% attend church here in the St. Louis area. So when you had the conversation and you asked me, what did you do this weekend? And part of the list I give is I went to church When you say church, the thought that goes into the head sometimes for some people, it did for me when I was a pre-Christian, was, wow, I like this person. They're intelligent, and they go to church. Hmm. And you kind of file that away. I might not ask about it, but it had an impact on me when you said it. When you make faith statements in conversation, for example, Someone might say, you know, I'm really having trouble with my marriage. And such and such happened. I'm having trouble with parenting right now. I'm having trouble uh, any number of things. Common problems that you've faced as well. If you make the statement, you know, my Christian faith has helped me with that. And just kind of lay that out there. They may take that up or they may not. But just a faith statement. They may ask you point blank, How? How, how has that helped you? And you can go right into a conversation. You're not forcing it, but you're just making a faith statement to them. Matthew parties. You know, Mike has done this well. Mike and Kelly, they have people come over, people from the neighborhood. A Matthew party is where uh, there are Christians and non-Christians. They invite you to come. 
and they know that their neighbors are going to come and some people they've invited who aren't Christians yet just to be around us because it dispels a myth about us that we can't have any fun, you know? When they see you having a good time, they're like, this just doesn't add up, you know? They're having a good time and they're Christian. What, what's going on there? But you can dispel myths and you can be a team to help each other. You're not in this alone. You're a part of a team. When it is time to share the gospel message, sometimes people are like, I don't know how to do that. Let me give you a real easy way to do it. Shareyourfaithapp.com. If you go there, you can download a little app so you can carry the gospel around with you at all times. You can be ready. And it just simply takes you through the gospel message. And you can just look at that with your friend. That's one way. There's not just one way to share the gospel, but that's a way to do it. And to remember that what our work is, what our part is, and what the Holy Spirit, what his work is. We're not the Savior. We can't save anyone. But we can point them to the Savior. And our motivation has got to be love. Love for Christ. Love for people. We pray with me? Lord, we thank you. That you honor us, you give us the privilege of being your ambassadors. There was a point in our life that someone, and maybe many someones, pointed us to Christ. And they said, look, there's the Lamb of God. And we came to faith in you, many of us in this room. We have come to faith in Christ, and he has come into our life and, and saved us. Lord, thank you for doing that. Now, Lord, would you use us to impact our oikos? Would you be at work even in this moment, opening hearts and minds? Would you spur us on? Would you set our heart on fire with a desire to love you and to love our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors enough to share something of Christ with them. And Lord, even in this moment, we're praying for people on our Oikos list. And I'm just going to get quiet for a moment and if anyone wants to say the first name of a person that we can all lift up, just just say that name that we can pray for them. Jill. Lord, you know each person on our minds, you have placed them there. You place them into our, our oikos. Lord, would you reach them for time and for eternity with the love of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he gathered the disciples in an upper room and they were shocked, I'm sure, that he did something they hadn't expected. They'd come for a Passover feast, yet he was doing something different. He took the cup, he gave thanks for it, and he gave it to them and he said, this is my blood shed for you, shed for the remission of sins. And as he did that, he would have reminded them of a ritual that every person in that community would have known. What would happen is when a, a man was going to ask a woman to marry him, he would first 
negotiate what's called the bride price. He would take his father normally to meet with the father of the bride. And they would negotiate a dowry. This cost, this bride price in order to be able to ask her to marry him. And then when they arrived at that bride price, and it was often at a very high cost because she was so valuable, such a treasure, then he would go and visit her. And he would ask her to marry him. And he would take a cup and he would offer it to her. And she knew what that meant. She knew that meant, I love you and I give my life to you. And she had a choice at that moment, didn't she? To either accept the cup or reject it. And if she accepted it, she was saying, and I love you and I give my life to you. There's a sense in which in communion, we do that, the bride of Christ. Now, don't be weirded out by the gender part of that. I think God used that analogy of marriage because it's the most intimate relationship that we know on earth. And he wants to have that relationship with you, that intimate relationship, and he offers you, Christ offers you to come and see and receive. He says, I love you. I gave my life for you. And I think sometimes we come too casually. Sometimes we come in a ritual form and not think about what it is when we receive the bread that his body was broken. And then every time we take it, it's to remember what he did for us. When we take the cup, we're remembering what he did for us. And we're saying, I love you, Lord, and I give my life to you. Lord, thank you for laying down your life. Thank you for being my friend. As you feel led tonight, come and and just receive the bread and the cup and remember what he did for you.